The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. As I said, I'm so excited about today. I, I love hearing baptisms and witnessing testimonies. We have seven people today who have said that they want to publicly declare Jesus Christ as their Savior and publicly testify before you, the body of Maranatha Bible Church, that Christ has changed their lives. They are Dave Dutzman, Angela Mosley, Steve Ward, Carrie Johnson, McKenna Johnson, Ariana Johnson, and Shelly Shaftsma. And in a few minutes, they are going to stand up here and they are going to tell you what their life was like before Jesus Christ got a hold of their lives. And then they're going to tell you what Christ did in drawing them to himself and how he actually saved them from their sins and brought them to the point of trusting Christ as their Savior. And then they're going to say and share some um, evidences of this fact in their life, how Christ has changed them and how they are new people. And I trust you're going to be encouraged as you hear these testimonies. But before I do that, I want to, I want to bring our minds back to what is this all about Why do we do this? What is the meaning of baptism? Why do we practice this? And in Acts chapter 8, we're going to encounter someone who was baptized and going to help us understand this. It's important for us to review this because there's much confusion about baptism today. There are some groups like the Quakers and the Salvation Army and those in hyper-dispensationalism who deny that baptism has any place in the church today. They would say that that was for a unique time and therefore it does not belong in the church today. There are others in the church of Christ who would say that in some branches anyway of the church of Christ that baptism saves you. That in order to be saved, in order to be sure of the fact that you are going to heaven, you must be baptized. And you must be baptized in that church. And if you haven't, then you will not be in heaven. There are others who say that infants need to be sprinkled to ensure the washing away of their sin and the inclusion of them into the covenant and putting them on the pathway to salvation. The Mormons practice a baptism for the dead, a baptism by proxy, whereas someone who is living is baptized for someone who has already died. And all of these are confusing understandings of what baptism is really about. And so it's important for us to understand what the Word of God says about baptism. Here at Maranatha Bible Church, we practice believers' baptism. We believe that the Bible teaches clearly believers who have a clear testimony of salvation through Jesus Christ are to be baptized by immersion. And we're going to try and explain that this morning. Robert Leitner once chairman of Systematic Theology at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this. This is how he defines believer's baptism. It is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. And this act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The act is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning back. End quote. Those who are being baptized today are saying the same thing. They're saying, Christ has changed me. I am a new person. 
I am identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now there's no turning back. That's what they're saying. And to help us understand better the importance of what's going to take place here in just a short time, I want us to look at one of the most unique baptisms in the Bible, the Ethiopian eunuch, in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Let me read the verses that we'll briefly look at this morning, starting in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and said, do you understand what you're reading And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom Does the prophet say this of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip, as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all cities until he came to Caesarea. It's one of the greatest texts on believer's baptism in all of Scripture It is one of the most clearest texts on the fact that baptism is one of the first steps of obedience to someone who has come to Christ and is now willing to follow Christ. They are to engage in believer's baptism. So briefly this morning, five scenes in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch's version and immersion. Okay, five scenes as we just walk through this text. And for those of you who are being baptized this morning... I want to encourage you from this text that you are doing something, you are being obedient to something that's been done for 2,000 years, and you are being faithful to the call of Christ upon your life to be baptized. For those of you who have been baptized, I want you to be encouraged that you would remember back to your baptism and remember back to your salvation when Christ changed you and you were obedient to the waters of baptism and rejoice in what Christ has done in redeeming you. For some of you here this morning, you've never been baptized by immersion, and I hope that this passage is a conviction to you, a challenge to you to soon be obedient to the call of God upon your life to submit to believer's baptism. Let's look at these five scenes briefly. Number one is the instruction. Scene one, the instruction. 
verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. We meet someone here by the name of Philip. This is not the apostle Philip. There was an apostle by the name of Philip, one of the twelve who was always listed in the lists of apostles. This is not him. This is a different Philip. This is Philip the evangelist, the first missionary. In fact, he is the only one in Scripture who is called an evangelist. Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist, but here, Philip, whom we meet, is called an evangelist. In Acts chapter 21, verse 8, says, they entered the house of Philip the evangelist. This is the same Philip. So Philip was an evangelist, a missionary. He's also one of the first chosen to meet the needs of the Hellenistic widows. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, when there were Hellenistic widows being overlooked in the giving of food, and they started to complain. And so the apostles said, let's set aside seven men whom we can put in charge of this task, men who can go and minister to these needs. And Philip was among those seven men. And so here's Philip. He's walking on his way back from Samaria to Jerusalem. And an angel comes to him and appears to him and tells him to go south, to travel south to a road that connects Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, at first glance, this is not going to seem very strange to you, but let me explain why this was very strange and why Philip, in his humanness, might have said, huh? Look at verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south. This command to go south can actually be translated Go at midday, go at noon, which is another way of saying go in the hottest, most scorching part of the day and go. That's very strange. No one travels in the middle of the day. No one travels at the highest point of the sun. No one travels in the hottest part when the sun is beating down on you. But God says to Philip through this angel, go. Go south or translate it a different way. Go at midday, go at noon, go in the hottest part of the day. But it gets stranger. Keep reading. Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Gaza was a coastal town in the Mediterranean Sea. There were two roads from Jerusalem to Gaza. One was the most traveled, the well-traveled. It went straight from Jerusalem west to Gaza, to the coast. There was another one, though, that went south out of Jerusalem and then went west to Gaza. This was the deserted Road. This is the road where not many people traveled. The word desert is the word desolate, abandoned, empty, deserted, lonely, uninhabited. This is how you could translate this word desert. This was that place where very few people went. It'd be like saying, you know, you need to go to Granville. And don't take 196. You take that Indian Mounds road, you know, where you never see anyone driving. You just take that really out-of-the-way road. This is what God is telling Philip to do. He's saying, you go in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day, when the sun is scorching, and you go to the place where there's nobody. That's a great strategy for evangelism, isn't it? All kinds of people are going to come to Christ. Sign me up. Well, that's what God says to do. Because God had a plan. God had a divine appointment for Philip in the middle of the day, in the hottest place where there was almost nobody. 
And it was on that seldom-traveled road in the heat of the day that God had sovereignly ordained Philip to meet an Ethiopian official. Number two, the introduction. The instruction, number two, the introduction. Verse 27. So, he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Look how verse 27 starts. So, he got up and went. He did exactly what God told him to do. He got up, he went, travels on his way to Gaza. And when he gets there, he sees a man whom he immediately identifies as an Ethiopian, someone who he probably recognized his speech or his dress. Later on, we learn he was riding in a chariot or a carriage, and so that doesn't take place very often in Israel. And so this would be very clearly someone from another country, and he quickly identifies him as someone who is from Ethiopia, that region below Egypt on the continent of Africa, same place then as it is located today. The Kohlers know this very well. They were just there. This represented the outermost limits of the then known world. So this was like way out in the middle of nowhere. And so Philip's traveling along and he sees this Ethiopian. And the word Ethiopian is a very interesting word. It comes from two words, itho, to scorch, ops, the face. It's someone who has a scorched face, a burnt face. This is the dark-skinned person. This is the person whose skin is dark and black, and they were known for their dark skin. In fact, the scripture even talks about these people. Do you remember in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? So they were known for their dark skin. And so Philip identifies this man partly by his dress, partly by his speech, but partly by his skin color. Verse 27. We learned something else about this man. He arose, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch. You probably didn't come today's service realizing that in this baptism service we'd be talking about eunuchs. But that's what the text says. So what is this? Here we go. A eunuch is one, a male, who has been emasculated or castrated. And in that culture, in the Middle East at that time, eunuchs were castrated males who were allowed to serve in many different positions within the government. And many of them were placed over the royal harem. They were in charge of the king's harem. And they were castrated in order to not make the women of the harem pregnant. That then there would be offspring, specifically sons, who could challenge the sons of the king as heirs to the throne. And so these eunuchs were often placed in the courts of the king in charge of their harem. And many of them actually rose to positions of influence. They ascended kind of a social structure within the royal courts, and some of them worked their way up to positions like bodyguards or advisors or court officials, and that was the case with this man. He was a court official. Look at verse 27. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, which is a title, not a person. It's not the name. Her name was not Candace. That was the title, like pharaoh or king or ruler. He was in the court of Candace. Uh, we don't know for sure if this man was an actual eunuch or not. There's a good chance he actually was. But this term was also used to refer to anyone in a government position. And so you could actually take this word literally or non-literally. But there's a good evidence here to take this word literally because Luke actually uses the word eunuch and the word court official. 
So if he was not a eunuch, he could have just used the word court official, but here he uses the word eunuch. And so there's a good reason to believe that this man was a true eunuch physically. Why is that important? Because if he was, he would have been denied access to the temple in Jerusalem. He would have been unable to fully participate in the worship services in Jerusalem because as a eunuch, he would not be allowed into the temple. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. They're forbidden. They're not allowed into the temple court. And so this eunuch, had he gone and he did go to Jerusalem to worship, he would have been excluded from the worship in the temple courts. They, were not, they weren't allowed. Because the practice of castration was often, often associated with idolatrous practices. And so they would not have been allowed into the temple court. He could have become a convert to Judaism. He could have read the scriptures He could have done some of those things, but he would not have been allowed to become a full proselyte of Judaism. At best, he would have been a God-fearer. Someone who read the scriptures, went to the synagogue, but stopped short short of a full convert to to Judaism. So here's a man seeking the Lord, going to Jerusalem to probably find the true God and to find a true relationship with this God and to learn about this God, arriving there and probably being told, you're not welcome, you can't come into the temple court because of your physical condition. Verse 27, what else do we learn about him? He was in charge of all her treasure. This was a high-ranking official in the court of Candace He had access to all her riches, all the privileges, all the power. He was looked up to and associated with the queen of Ethiopia, a man of great privilege and great honor and great respect. And he was trusted by the queen herself to watch over her riches. And it was this man, verse 27, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, looking for the true God. Well, probably because he had been prohibited from entering the temple, he probably left empty, still looking for something to fill his soul, still looking for that relationship with God, still looking for something that will change his life, remove his sin, and give him hope. And so he's leaving, probably greatly dejected, on his way home, verse 28, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. You can almost imagine this scene, can't you? He's been there. He's been dashed. His hopes have been dashed. He's turned around. He's on his way back. He's in his chariot, traveling back to Ethiopia. Verse 28 says he's reading the prophet Isaiah. He must have purchased a scroll there. In his time in Jerusalem, he must have paid a large amount of money to get a copy of a Greek translation of Isaiah. And on his way home, he's passing his time by reading it. And he's reading it out loud. In that culture, when you read, you read it out loud. In fact, the rabbis of that day taught that you were to read it out loud in order to help you memorize it. And so he's reading the scroll out loud. And we know that because in verse 30, Philip hears him. Verse 30 says, when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. So he hears him. He hears this man reading the prophet. You think about it. There's probably no greater book in the Old Testament that he could have read 
than this book right here, the fifth gospel, right? There's five gospels. Isaiah is the fifth. Because Isaiah is all about the life of Christ. And it starts with his birth, and you hear about his reign, and his rule, and his death. All the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and we will call, she will call his name Emmanuel. Reference to the birth of Christ. And here's this eunuch reading Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, it speaks of the reign of Christ. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders. And they will call his name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5, speak of his rule. And then we come to Isaiah 53. That great text on the bruised reed Christ, who's crushed for our sin. And, and here's this eunuch bumping along in his chariot. He's got the scroll open and he's reading Isaiah 53, trying to understand what it's saying. Verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. God says, Philip, there's your man. Probably the only one on the road in the middle of the day in the scorching heat. And so the scene is set. You've got this man sitting in his chariot reading the word of God. You've got the spirit of God that is orchestrating all these events, bringing these two men together Philip is in place, he's ready to share the gospel with him, and God from eternity past has sovereignly prepared this setting for this very moment, right here. From before the foundation of the world, God has planned for this very moment, and all the pieces are coming together for this man to come to Christ. I was thinking as I was reading that this week, I have to imagine God did the same thing today for us, doesn't he? That God in his sovereignty is orchestrating situations for you and I to meet people and talk to them and share Christ with them. And those are all around us every day. Now, we don't get these clear instructions from heaven like Philip got. Go talk to that man and this is your mission and should you decide to accept it. We don't get that clear word from heaven like Philip got. But we have to be attentive to the fact that God is still, he must be still doing this. He must still be orchestrating opportunities for you and I to share Christ. And you say, well, what if I don't take the, the opportunity? Well, God will find someone else, but we miss out on the blessings. And so just a practical thing that comes out of this, are you, are you strategic? Are you taking advantage of the opportunities and the people that God is bringing your way? What a great joy. It must have been for Philip. What a great joy it would be for us to be able to speak boldly of Christ, knowing that God has sovereignly orchestrated an event like that for us to be a part of. Well, number three. Here the story gets really interesting. Verse 30, number three, the conver conversation. We've seen the instruction, the introduction. Number three, the conversation. Verse 30, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? I, I love this. 
Do you notice what's not here? Philip, Philip didn't get afraid. I don't know. Not sure if I should talk to this guy. I'm a little nervous. Not sure I can do this. Nor did he pray. Dear God, is it your will for me to share the gospel with this man? He just knew God sovereignly orchestrated this opportunity and he knew it. And so what does it say in verse 30? He ran. He didn't walk. He ran. He couldn't get there fast enough. First word in the Greek sentence, literally ran Philip and heard. He couldn't get there quick enough. He ran because he knew that God had ordained this opportunity. The eunuch, or he asked the eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And again, no introduction. You notice what's not here? He doesn't say, hello, I'm Philip. What's your name? He doesn't say that. No small talk. Hey, nice chariot. Where'd you get those wheels? Weather. Man, it is so hot today, isn't it? Man, how was Jerusalem for you? Did you have a good... No small talk. He goes right for the jugular. Do you understand what you're reading? 31, the eunuch replies, and he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, I like this too, because the eunuch is so engrossed in this passage, he doesn't even ask who this guy is. Now, if that were me, I'd be like, uh, are you talking to me? Right? What, what's your name? Who are you? Where, where do you come from? There's no one around here. Where did you just come from? How? Not him. The eunuch says, Uh, How can I? I can't even understand. The first thing out of his mouth is he was so perplexed by this passage that he'd been reading, he doesn't even care who this guy was. He wanted someone to help him. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. He invited, literally, he urged, he exhorted, he pleaded with. He urged Philip. This was a desperation. This was a, please, come Tell me what this is about. He wanted to know what he was reading. What was he reading? Look at verses 32 and 33. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led to as a sheep as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate this generation for his life is removed from the earth. This is Isaiah 53. This is may be the most crucial text in the whole Old Testament that this guy needed to be reading at that very moment to understand the gospel and God sovereignly has this man reading that exact passage. Just by way of application, it is the word of God that brings life. It is the word of God that makes people spiritually alive. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. It is through the living, abiding word of God, applied to the heart by the spirit of God, that brings regeneration and brings new life. That's what was taking place at this moment. Number four. The instruction, the introduction, the conversation. Number four. The explanation. The explanation. Verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet 
say this, of himself or of someone else. He wants to know, who is this about? This passage that he's just read from Isaiah 53, who is this about? Who is this referring to? Is this Isaiah writing about himself or is this someone else? Who is this about? Well, Philip answers that question. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And it says he did it from this scripture, from this passage. He led someone to the Lord from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. He didn't give him a track. He didn't give him the four spiritual laws. He preached Christ to him. And you can't see it, but in the white spaces between verse 35 and verse 36, the Ethiopian eunuch came to Christ. For the first time, understanding the gospel. For the first time, hearing of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his life, his offer of sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins for the first time coming to understand it and right there between verse 35 and verse 36 this man is miraculously saved number five the immersion and this is where it comes into play for our service this morning this is the application for our service this morning the first response of this man was I must be baptized. Verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37 is not in the best of our texts or the best manuscripts. There's question as to whether or not this verse is, is, should be here. But verse 37 says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Can't you just imagine the scene? They're bumping along. They're on their way to, to Ethiopia and Philip jumps in the chariot, he shares Christ, he preaches the gospel, the man is saved, and the first thing out of his mouth is, stop! Water! Let's do this now! And this is what we're doing today. The same exact thing. Just two truths I want to pull out of here for application for us, and then we'll move on. The first one is this, this is post-salvation. This is after this man is saved. This is, this is for all who are saved. This is all who have been saved. There's an order here. Salvation first, baptism second. Not the other way around. Salvation first, conversion, redemption, forgiveness of sin. And as a result of that, then baptism. So the first truth is this is a post-salvation practice. Only for believers. Only for those who have been truly transformed by Jesus Christ. Only those who have submitted to Christ, have been crucified with Christ, and raised up to new life with Him. That's why we don't baptize infants here. That's why we don't sprinkle infants here. Because we don't believe that that is an, an appropriate expression of biblical baptism, of believer's baptism. Because there's an order. Salvation first, baptism second, not 
sprinkle some water, and hopefully save someday. Get it? There's a reason for the order. Baptism is for believers, and it's for all believers. It's for every believer. It's an issue of obedience. What was it about this that drew this man, Philip, to to be baptized? It must have been a compelling desire to be obedient, and he knew it. This is for all believers. There should be no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. It's an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. It's something that should not be true. Two words, when brought together, seem to contradict each other. The word unbaptized Christian is an oxymoron because it should not be true. F.F. Bruce says the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. It's not a personal choice, but a divine command. End quote. Charles Spurgeon said, Nothing is more plainly taught in the New Testament than it is the duty of every believer in Christ to be baptized. It's a command. So it's for believers, and it's for all believers. The second truth I want you to notice from here is that this is, the mode is important. The mode, how this is done, is very important. Look at verse 36. And they went along, and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. Was this a little bowl? Was this a cup? No. Verse 38. He ordered the chariot to stop, and they went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him, verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, so going into the water, coming up out of the water, the mode here is very, very, very important. In fact, the word baptized in verse 38 is the word baptizo, which means to dip completely, to immerse, or to drown. Don't worry. Don't worry. No drownings today, I promise. The idea here is complete immersion under the water because, listen carefully, there's a symbolism here that is trying to communicate a very important spiritual truth. To immerse is to be symbolic of what has taken place in the life of that believer. And every baptism that we see in Scripture is by immersion. Matthew 3, verse 16, we read it this morning. Christ came up immediately from the water, having gone into the water. Mark chapter 1, verse 5 says, John the Baptist was there baptizing in the Jordan River. John 3, verse 23 says, John was baptizing because there was much water. It's in the water. You go down under the water and come up out of the water because immersion fits the picture of what baptism is all about. When a person goes down under the water, when a person who's truly trusted Christ has gone down under the water, it's symbolic of the removal of their sin and coming up out of the water is symbolic of new life in Christ. And so that's why we don't sprinkle. Because sprinkling doesn't communicate the same symbolism or imagery. The reality of the new birth in Christ is that we have been identified with his death and identified with his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 say, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism, the symbol is saying, under the water, I have, been, I have been crucified with Christ, and coming up out of the water is symbolic of being raised up to newness of life with him. Baptism identifies us with Christ. It also identifies us with the body of Christ, the church. 
And I believe this is why the eunuch was so insistent upon baptism. He says, I must be identified with my Savior. And so this account reminds us why this is so important. This is not just a personal decision. This is not just something that we decide to do every once in a while. This is a divine command. And these seven people this morning who are going to be baptized are here to give public declaration of the fact that they have been redeemed, they have died with Christ, and they are now alive in Christ as well. Baptism should point us back to the cross. And as we celebrate baptisms in just a few moments, if you've been baptized, you should rejoice in the cross. And if you are being baptized this morning, let this be an opportunity for you to remember Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. It's all possible because of the cross. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.